0: There we go. We need a rotating stage, it has different stuff set up on it. You know, it just turns in the middle of the service, and we're we're all good to go. All right, Deuteronomy fourteen this morning. Um, we are, um, like we've said, we're kind of w- well into this this second third major chunk of Deuteronomy um, the first is chapters 1 to 4 there's sort of this um, recap of what life was like in the wilderness coming up out of Egypt for Israel and then chapter 6 to 11 Moses sort of sets the tone he gives us a thesis statement so to speak um, for the whole book um, and that's where we have love the Lord your God with all your heart soul mind and strength Sorry, heart, soul, and strength, Jesus adds mind later on. Um, and then the Ten Commandments are in that 5 to 11 section. Um, and so then in Chapter 12, we sort of transition into what we really think of as like the law, the, the like chunk where Moses actually says, this is what those Ten Commandments mean. Let me walk it out for you in every day an um, understanding what it would be like to live this every day. And so sometimes we come to these texts, and they're sort of foreign or strange or difficult for us. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine what life is like for a bunch of wandering shepherds, um, what four or five thousand years ago, right? They're just so far from our life. Um, I mean, fifty or sixty years ago, <laughs> Jack and I were talking today. I, what is it, that Woodstock was fifty years ago this year, you know. <laughs> And it's like, okay, well, even that feels like it's so long ago, and the world was so different. You had a few more thousand years on there, and the world just seems like it's so far from what we experience and what we live. And so how can we come to these texts and go, this is actually speaking for us, and yet that's our conviction? Well, maybe you remember those that when we understood or when we uh, talked about those Ten Commandments or those Ten Words, That Moses gives to the people of Israel, that kind of famous list of ten don'ts, right? Don't kill, thou shalt not, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not um, steal, commit adultery, covet, all those things. Those ten commandments were controlled. They had this idea that sat on top of all of those ten don'ts. And the idea that sat on top of them and that helps us understand them was I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. And if you don't understand that God is saying to them, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, then you can't understand what those ten words, what those ten commandments mean. They don't come just in a vacuum. They're not just some rules that we stick on the side of our buildings and say, okay, now we can follow them, and if we follow these rules, we'll therefore be right. No, you've got to know the God who brings you out of Egypt if you want to understand these commandments, right? And so the same thing happens here. We're going to get today into the kosher laws or the rule about what you should eat and what you shouldn't eat. The rules about what the Jews were, how they were supposed to conduct themselves when it came to the animals that they would eat in the land. Now, you may, maybe you know the basics, right? what's the big one like no pig <laughs> no bacon no pork no ham sandwiches no uh carnitas tacos noth- nothing nothing that comes from a pig now that's kind of the basic one but it gets it gets a lot more in depth than that right you might know no shrimp right so no uh what are those cocktails shrimp cocktails i yeah you can see anyway no shellfish, no oysters, Rockefeller, uh, no cheeseburgers, no mixing dairy and meat together. Right? There's a law in here we're gonna read don't boil a, a kid, a, a goat in its mother's milk, and so that out of that comes as we don't mix both dairy and meat. Well, let me just read what Moses says here instead of. So this is chapter fourteen, verses one, and we'll go all the way down through twenty one. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You shall not eat any abomination. These are the animals you may eat. The ox, cow, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roebuck, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. Every animal that parts the hoof and has the hoof cloven in two and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Yet, of those that chew the cud or have the hoof hoof cloven, you shall not eat these, the camel, the hare, and the rock badger, because they chew the cud, but they do not part the hoof. They are unclean for you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof but does not chew the cud, it is unclean for you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. Of all that are in the waters, you may eat these. Whatever has fins and scales, you may eat. And whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. You may eat all clean birds, but these are the ones that you shall not eat. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the night hawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl and the short eared owl, the barn owl and the tawny owl, the carrion vulture and the cormorant, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe and the bat, and all winged insects are unclean for you. Okay? Don't eat winged insects. All clean winged things you may eat. You shall not eat anything that has died naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns that he may eat it. Or you may sell it to a foreigner, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, what's the controlling idea? (laughs) Do you pick up in the first couple verses? Those first two lines, you are the sons or the children of the Lord your God. Skipping down to verse two, for you are a people holy to the Lord, your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. This is when we need to be wise in the way that we interpret scripture, because we understand that all of scripture is for all of God's people. Right. God does not cancel the Old Testament when Jesus shows up on the scene. He doesn't say, all right, you don't have to read poetry anymore because now we're into New Testament times. Or now you don't have to read the law, the thing that has guided and directed the life of Israel for thousands of years. That's just, you know, that's old news now. No, all of Scripture is for all of God's people. And so as the people of God, we understand even this to be for us. We've got to be wise in the way we understand it, but we understand it to be for us. The people of Israel weren't supposed to cut themselves, we hear, or shave the front of their heads. This is in those first two verses when someone dies. That's fair enough. I can follow that law, right? Because that's, for me, that's not in my culture, that's not in my world. I have no temptation to shave my forehead or the kind of the front part of my hair when somebody dies. But why does this show up? Now, we don't know exactly. We know a lot about their world, right? We know a lot about what it was like to live in that part of the world at that time. But we don't know everything. We don't know exactly what they did when somebody died. But it seems like if we read that, that for an Israelite or a Canaanite or somebody who is close to them, somebody close to them dies. I'm then going to go shave my forehead. What's the other thing? Or, or cut myself, right? I don't know why, but what I do know as I read that text is that if I do those things as a sign of mourning, I'm demonstrating that I belong to something or someone other than the Lord. I'm engaged in somebody else's practice of worship and grieving that marks me out as not one who strictly belongs to God but I've now engaged in somebody else's religious practices as a way of being a part of the culture or just demonstrating how deeply grieved I am. And so we may not be able to understand that in 21st century Sacramento, but we understand what it is to be tempted to confess that you belong to someone or something other than God, don't we? We understand what it is To have that pull towards worship outside of the one true Lord. We understand that. This is the controlling idea. And it's the idea that we have to hold on to throughout this whole text. And when things seem strange or they seem beyond our understanding, we have to remember this, that we are a people holy to the Lord our God that the Lord has chosen us for his treasured possession and so knowing that we can get into the body of this right which is that there are some animals that we shouldn't eat the Israelites saw three classes of animals in the world okay there's people in one sense kind of on the top of the pyramid then you've got land animals I can think I, I think it's day six that they get created right land animals you got The ones who walk up high and the ones who crawl and squirm and wriggle around down low. So you got cows, right? They don't drag their bellies. And then you got like reptiles and stuff that are always scraping along the ground. And then there's the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. And there weren't a lot of categories other than that land, fish, you know, land animals, fish animals, water animals, fish animals, and birds of the air. And some of them, in each case, were okay for eating, and some of them were not okay for eating. In the case of the land animals, you can, you can even, if they have a split hoof, and if they chew the cud, cows, sheep, goats, why not camels? Why not horses? Why not pigs? I don't know. <laughs> we have guesses, and people have read these texts, and they go, well, I guess maybe it's for this reason or for that reason, but we don't actually know. And none of our guesses work across the board they don't none of them are totally consistent with the fish they could eat scaly fish if they had scales and fins okay so no shellfish no octopus um no squid no shrimp sorry um you know you could eat trout you could eat bass uh you could eat rockfish Clyde you're good but no uh, sharks, no dolphins because they don't have scales, fins but no scales, right? For the birds, the basic breakdown, they could eat birds that didn't eat other things, right? So you could eat like a chicken, but you can't eat a vulture because a vulture is sticking there, sticking its head in something gross. And they could eat hopping locusts, right? So – or sorry, hopping insects. So like locusts and grasshoppers, those were fine but no dragonflies, all right? You couldn't eat flying winged insects. And again, we don't know why. <laughs> if you want to ask me, why do we draw the line here and not here? We're just really not sure. But that's not the point. <laughs> but that's not the point. I was So I was born like in 1987, right? I was born end of the 80s. Um, and that means that by the time I was, you know, desperately trying to become my own person in this world at like 13 or 14 years old, there was this full-blown, I don't know if you guys remember this, it's sort of faded out now, but there was like parallel cultures. We had like, you know, s- secular, scary secular culture, and then, and then we had like Christian culture. Do you remember that? It's again, it's, there's, it's still around. Caleb is still on the radio, um, all that kind of stuff, but, but a lot of that has sort of faded a little bit. Um, and we kind of developed this idea in the Christian church that if you want to be a Christian, you just, you have to stay away from secular culture. Because secular stuff's bad and Christian stuff is good, so we'll make anything that we need to do, we'll just do a Christian version of it. And so there were Christian concerts and uh, Christian clothing companies and, you know, there were youth events where you would go, like, take your Christ your secular CDs and you'd burn them and then you go buy the Christian version of that same CD, um so there's like Metallica is burning there on the altar, but then you go by Disciple or whatever heavy metal Christian band you wanted to listen to. Um, and, and we developed this kind of parallel idea. I think what happened, <laughs> as someone who lives and still lives a little bit through that, is that, there was this change in our hearts where in order to be a real good follower of Christ, um, in order to be a really good follower of Christ, you had to basically stay away from anything that was secular, right? And you had to buy Christian. <laughs> and so to follow Jesus meant you changed your buying habits, but not in a way that increased justice in the world, not in a way that increased love in the world, not in a way that reached out to or evangelized people, but it was in a way that separated you from the secular world. And I, th- I think if when we say that out loud, we all know that that's a pretty poor way to build faith. That leaves some pretty poor... Soil. And so we see now this surprising and even sometimes kind of tragic way in which all of these Christian leaders from that time are falling away and even losing their faith. I got to wonder why it is. I think a major contributing element is that we had a culture within some circles of Christianity that were about creating brands. Not people full of virtue not people full of holiness. Now think about the kosher laws. Forget about why these specific species are allowed or not allowed. That's a question I don't think we can answer. But think instead, what would these rules do to the Israelites? What kind of people would it make them to be? They could eat the animals, oxen, sheep, goats. They could eat those animals that they could raise and herd, right? They could eat birds that lived close to human society like doves and um, quail, right? They could eat fish that they could catch in lakes, but they're not sailing out into the Mediterranean Sea and dragging up dolphins or giant squid. And there's even this provision for hunting, there's even this provision that I, you can go out and get a gazelle, you can go out and get a deer, you, that's fine, nothing against any of that. I mean, think about how this develops over time. You've got David, he's out herding sheep in Bethlehem, you've got the disciples, they're a part of this fishing industry on, on the Lake of Gal- on Lake Galilee. And there's even this provision for people who are maybe wandering through the wilderness and just need to eat something. It's like, okay, fine, there's a herd of locusts here, I'll just go through and pick up what I can pick up. I can sort of crunch on those for a little while. But what does this way of eating protect against? Remember back to the Garden of Eden. And what's the relationship of humans to animals in the Garden of Eden? Anyone remember? I mean, yeah, Adam, like, he's not really supposed to, like, be that close with the animals. God kind of brings all the animals to him and says, like, is this – your partner is this your partner is this your partner and, and eventually no like he goes through all the animals and none of them are good for Adam and so God makes the man and the woman right and they can be partners with each other but all of those animals are in like a friendly relationship with Adam and Eve and then after sin enters the world and violence enters the relationship between Cain and Abel and brothers are killing each other violence then begins to spread out throughout all of humanity and there's these sense the, in the first few chapters of Genesis, that it's not just kept to the human relationships, but violence even begins to spread into the way that humanity deals with the earth and that humanity deals with animals. So that there's this kind of like rapacious desire to kill for its own sake. Where I'm just, you know, I... <laughs> just kind of think about early americans on the plane just shooting buffalo because like i bet i can hit that buffalo and then you got buffalo carcasses rotting all over the place right we're just going to kill just because there's something in us that tells us to kill and that's not the relationship that god ever imagined between people and the earth people and the land that he made for his own glory has always provided for his people. There's no need for that kind of gratuitous violence. And so in Genesis Genesis 9, after the flood, God limits the meat-eating of people. He says, yeah, you can eat anything you want, but don't eat the lifeblood, right? You're not here to suck the life out of these creatures around you. You can eat them for your sustenance, but not for your pleasure and, like, joy and violence. Well, it's the same thing here, only it becomes even more limited. God begins to narrow it down even more. That these boundaries that God sets up for his people keep them from walking into the land and kind of going, what can we take? What can we eat? What can we uh, kill? How, how can we like dominate and possess this land in a way that it is ours? They walk in and they say, okay. What are the boundaries that God has established for us so that we're raising animals that ultimately in the long run are actually good for the land that God has given us? What are the ways that we're going to care for this place, this sort of new Eden, this land of promise, this land of milk and honey, so that because we are here, the land is now better and the people around us are now better? I want to suggest two things. The Israelites have to stay aware of the source of all life being in God, right? And they ultimately have to develop industries that are sustainable, that they can pass on to the next generation of Israelites. Whether that's fishing or shepherding, in the way they eat, they cannot strip the land down to nothing, They need to be prepared to grow slowly and sustainably over time. Not enslaving the land the way Egypt enslaved them. Do you see why this matters? We have this tendency in our world. We have this tendency in ourselves to move into a place, to move into something, and to try to dominate it and possess it and own it and use it to strip it down. I mean, economically, we do this to the land all the time. The way that we farm, we do this to the ground. Okay, I got it. That's (laughs) – I have – I have opinions that I need to hear careful (laughs) of. What kind of people are we to be as the people of God? We often think of these things in terms of rules. I think it's much better maybe for us to think about it in terms of attitude or tone rather than us walking into a place and saying, What are the exact rules, the exact thing that we can and can't do? The question is, as we go into a place, we know that God has given all things into our hands, right? But we need to do it with love. We need to do it with a sense of God's glory and preeminence in our lives. I mean, think about the way that you pray before you eat. Christians do this all the time a lot of times we don't know why we do it (laughs) but we do it all the time (laughs) like my my favorite prayer is like Lord bless this food to our bodies right Lord bless this bacon maple donut covered in melted butter and syrup and make it somehow healthy to me (laughs) Because Jesus says in Mark 7 that whatever goes into a man's mouth does not go into his heart but goes into his stomach. Well, my cardiologist might tell me that some of it does go to your heart, (laughs) right? (laughs) And so God doesn't take bad food and somehow make it good. (laughs) We don't pray that God will change what's on our plates. When we pray, we are pausing and recognizing that all sustenance, that all good things come from God we're training our eyes, we're training our appetites to be able to be under the control of our will, which is under the control of our love for God. When we pray that way, we are building virtue. We are building holiness. So you see, we aren't simply separating ourselves out from the world. We're not just saying, like, this is Christian stuff, and this is secular stuff, and we just want to be different because if we're different, we'll be okay No, what we do is we recognize that we had been placed in the world as a sign of God's salvation. And so because of that, we do the same things many times that the world does, but we do it with a different vision. Think about what Peter does, right? Peter has lived his whole life as a faithful Jew, and here in Acts 10, he's sleeping on the roof of this house, or he's praying on the roof of this house. God gives him a vision to take all of these animals that he wasn't supposed to eat, all the winged insects and the reptiles and the pigs and all the stuff he's not supposed to eat, and, and God tells him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he tells him it three times, three times. And when he comes out of the vision, somebody comes to his door and says, Peter, Cornelius, this Roman centurion wants to meet with you. And Peter's like, I'm a Jew, I'm a good Jew, I'm not supposed to eat with other Gentiles. To do that would be unclean. But because of the vision he goes and when he gets to Cornelius' house, there is a second Pentecost where the first Pentecost in Acts 2 had fallen on the Jews as they gathered to worship during one of their high festivals. This second Pentecost falls among the Gentiles and the Spirit comes on them and they are doing all of the things that they were doing in Acts 2. God has clearly said the gospel is not simply a reworking of the story of the Old Testament for Jews to be Jews a little bit differently. This gospel is for the whole world. It's carrying out the thing that the Torah, that the law was always meant to carry out, which is that in my people, my salvation would be made known. And so it's not do you see what I'm saying? It's not simply about there's these rules and those rules. And, and now we sort of broadened the rules. No, no. God has broadened the rules so that we might be able to be the holy people among the nations. But remember, remember how Jesus deals with these things. Remember the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus takes the Ten Commandments and he does not make them easier. You remember that? He says, you've heard it said, do not murder. Well, I tell you, do not even be angry in your heart. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I tell you, if a man even looks at a woman lustfully, he's committed adultery with her in his heart. Do you see what Jesus has done? He takes things that are at the level of my external action and he deepens them into the level of my heart, my attitude, my spirit, my orientation toward God. And so now it's not just a question of are you following or not following the rules? It's a question of is your whole life, heart, soul, mind, and strength devoted to me in love? That's always what the law wanted to get at. That's always what these kosher laws wanted to get at. Is all of you devoted to me in love? Are you devoted to me in the way that you eat? Are you devoted to me in the way that you raise your animals? Are you devoted to me in the way that you love? Or are you devoted to me in the way that you try to escape hellfire? That you try to get away from punishment? No, God has called his people. Moses wants to see in Deuteronomy is not the exact rules necessary for God to love us. The instructions he's giving Israel are guidelines that will develop them in the virtues they need for life in the promised land. Faith in God's future provision, hope for the coming generation, love for the God who gives us such gifts. And as those things happen, it builds up discipline. The ability to say no to our appetites so we can say yes to God. Remember the controlling idea in verses one and two? Well, Peter picks up on it again in his letter. Uh, First Peter chapter three, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. Does that sound familiar for Moses? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against the soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see, whether we are Israel on the plains of Moab getting ready to go into the promised land, whether we're the first century church in the Roman Empire trying to take this new gospel about Jesus Christ to the nations, or whether we are the church in suburban 21st century Sacramento, we have a responsibility to put our lives under the good limitations of God so that when people see us, when people look at us, they see that we care about the future of the land and the society that God has given us. We have a tendency in the church sometimes to strip people down, to use them, to over-volunteer them, (laughs) to take as much time and energy as we can get from people so that they're so exhausted and there's nothing left for the next week. And sometimes we do this to our leadership, and sometimes we do this to folks who aren't necessarily leadership. (laughs) It's just somebody who's willing to serve, and we use and we use and we use until people are exhausted and tired, and we look at people's lives and we go, is that really the goodness of God? Is that really the thing that we want to point people toward? Now, let me say, sometimes we use and we use and we use people because the other people who should be getting used aren't stepping up. And there's holes and there's gaps and the things that need to get done. And so that 10% does 90%. And I'm sure there's somebody here who has a ministry who has something that God has laid on their heart who hasn't yet stepped up. Who God has said, look, I want you to be involved here. This is not just the church that you come to receive. This is the church to in which I have invited you to participate so that you too might become a messenger of the gospel. Beloved, in our world that seeks to stretch out our money, our energy, our attention, let me encourage you to do two things. The one, and I'm trying to walk the line between guilt and shame here, right? (laughs) Guilt can be good, shame is not. I'm not trying to shame anybody into anything. (laughs) But if God has called you into some sort of service, please let me know. I want to help you, not only for my own sake, although for my own sake, but also for yours. But the second is that maybe there's some way, some place that God has called you into some small act of community building. Reaching out to somebody who you're looking around this morning, you're going, I think I know who they are, and they've got a name tag on. Thanks, Jack, for doing that all the time, but, you know— But I don't necessarily know them, and I don't really know their story, and I don't know where they come from or why they're here. And maybe you've been a part of this small church for years and years and years, but you've never actually seen or reached out to that person. Let me encourage you to take that small act of community building, to open up your home, to open up a booth in Burger King for a lunch. Just find a way to connect with somebody. Build a relationship this week. And you're not going to be able to do it all at once, and there are no silver bullets that make this magically happen. But one of the ways that we can be this kind of church that Peter calls for that proclaims the excellencies, I love that word, (laughs) the, the excellencies of Jesus Christ, is to be a people who actually care to sit down and converse with someone who is like us or who is not like us this one act pushes against our cultural tendency to see people that we just share space with on sunday it pushes us into the details into the joys of each other's life i'm i was just struck by lucy's going away party yesterday um and What a gift it was over the last only like a year or so, right? Yeah. To be able to worship with her, to share space, to share life with her. um, And then to kind of go and go to her house and be in like, I I know, I know that I know that we were like breaking fire code with the number of people that were backed into that house. And the people who had cared for her who she had cared for, who she'd shared Bible studies with and life with, who she'd called on the phone, I'm assuming, I don't know. But <laughs> and, and, and those kind of moments become the thing—the time when stuff comes to the surface where you go, wow, one person sort of has these fingers and these connections in all of these webs, right? But that's not something that happens immediately, That's not something that happens with one phone call or one conversation or one lunch. That's something that happens as we orient our lives toward the lives of others who are close to us. And so my prayer, even as we mourn (laughs) Lucy leaving us, we're grateful that she's going to be able to be with her son in Colorado, that she's going to be able to take that web somewhere else, and I'm sure begin to build a new web Amongst people and places that need her. But we all have that responsibility. How might we connect to those who are in need? Even just of a friend. Even if it's just a friend. Let your good deeds shine before all people. Let us have our kindness and love for each other. And for the stranger in our midst, our commitment to eternal things be the mark of God's grace on us. Instead of being like those in our culture who just eat and buy and possess and cheat and steal and can never get enough, let us be like those saints of God who learn to say no to the stuff and to the things and to the experience that clog up a life so that they might say yes to God with all their heart pass on that love to yet another generation of saints let's pray Lord God we are deeply grateful for the work that you have done among us for work that you continue to do in us would you open us up we pray to receive the gifts of your grace as we come to your table this morning in Jesus name